Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Hello and welcome to a very special episode that we have today. Those of you who have been following us since the first season will know that I put out a design criteria list that we here at Abundant Edge follow ourselves when we're working with clients and organizations. Now we've updated it and completely overhauled the document that you can download for free in the accompanying PDF that goes along with this podcast. Today, Neil Haggerty and I will be working through this criteria list to explain and give you a better understanding of how we work through information gathering, visioning, strategy, design, and all of the other necessary steps to make sure that projects and visions actually come to fruition. The biggest challenge for our team here at Abundant Edge when it comes to holistic design is that there are just so many different considerations climate and landscape data, clients' wants and needs, economic constraints, and many more can seem overwhelming, but are crucial to creating designs that work in harmony with nature and solve real problems. Now, this is why we've put together our design criteria checklist to help us remember some of the most important considerations and questions to ask when designing for individuals and organizations alike. Now, this list isn't meant to be a replacement for your own judgment or creativity as a designer, but it reflects many of the criteria that have helped us the most and what we consider to be the most essential bits of information and observations that can be expanded on based on the needs of your clients or your own projects. 
We are constantly updating and revising this list, so feel free to let us know if there are any other essential criteria missing from the list or considerations that you think are important. So in this episode, Neil and I will be going through the criteria in order and explaining some of the ways that we've used it in designs for ourselves here on our farm and for clients and organizations that we've worked with in the past. We've got some great stories for how this has become relevant in our own practice, and hopefully this will illustrate some of the ways that you can use it for yourself and give you some insight into why the the items on this list are really important. We really hope that you enjoy this and get something out of it, and we look forward to hearing your feedback as well as we continue to develop this document, uh, which will continue to be free for everybody and will continue to grow as we improve our own process. Now, this list was a little bit long, so we've split it up into two parts. In this episode, we'll be going through the visioning and goal setting exercise all the way to the end of your site analysis. In next week's episode, we'll take things back up from invisible structures all the way to strategy and planning so that you can move forward in an organized and a prepared manner to get your designs done right the first time. Now, like I mentioned before, the design criteria list is available in the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com, and you can feel free to read ahead and get ahead of us before next week's episode. All of the resources are in the same PDF. So let's jump right on in. So let's start at the beginning and talk about defining your visions and goals. Neil, why is this so essential for us when we're working with clients to get everybody on the same page here in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think this approach to design and and, and setting goals is is nothing nothing unique to permaculture or holistic design. A lot of people who work in design uh, use this, a similar kind of a platform to this that starts with visioning and, and clear articulation of goals because the thing is you meet the the vast majority of clients that I meet when I talk to them about goals they don't really have clear goals they've maybe heard about permaculture heard about regenerative farming and that's about it they say like I want to have an organic farm or I want to have a permaculture garden or or something like that and it's really not much of a clear goal so it's hard to set any kind of design criteria around sort of what inevitably happens in those situations when goals aren't clearly defined is that too much of the designer's uh, bias gets put into the design or you end up with something that doesn't get properly run or whatever. So really spending your time to clearly and and very specifically articulate your goals is very important. And that's kind of a process, you know. Yeah, I've always found that it's really worth taking your time on this stage. So though many of the answers that you're likely to get from these questions might be kind of abstract, It's one of the most important categories to take your time with. Until you can define your vision and goals and get everyone involved on the same page, you're likely to stumble over things like miscommunication and conflicting agendas. Like Neil just said, you know, a lot of people come to us or start projects with these vague ideas of like, I want to produce a certain amount of my food and are not very specific on like where those calories are going to come from, what species are most appropriate to their place in their region. And getting the specifics of what it is you're actually trying to achieve can make everything later along the process so much easier. And this is also for me one of the most fun categories to work through. I would really encourage clients and organizations to dream as big as possible at this stage. This is where you're kind of unlimited by environmental factors, budget, and other things and can really just come up with whatever it is that you want. As we move further in the design process, we'll start to put limitations on this and some constraints on what is possible. But here is when you can be really creative. 
yeah it's a time to it's a time to dream big right and um and and yeah do just that vision sit down uh with all the interested parties and the designer um brainstorm until you can come up with a vision that you're all happy with and some really really specific goals right like i saw oliver you're reading that book at the moment by eric uh tosen meyer how do you pronounce his name um paradise lots you know about him and his friend who started this like urban garden and what was their goal we want to have uh five heaped handfuls of fruit all year round from this garden you know that's a great goal really really specific um and you know then they do then they go on and do their site analysis and they decide if this is actually realistic or not so you know that can be a goal we want to have we want to have 70% of our diet provided for from this land when we want it plus extra food left over to sell plus loads of um, support plants that provide extra fertility habitat for animals um, that seep water into the soil you know something like that is kind of like our goal for this farm for example and so and then we, we you know we then go on to our our site analysis and we decide is this realistic or not right absolutely and aside from just what the land can carry there are a lot of kind of invisible things that you need to work into your plan at this this point a lot of it comes along with things like uh, lifestyle design how do you want your lifestyle to look later along in the process of developing your site especially if you're keen on doing some sort of farming gardening uh, animal raising or things along that line, it comes with a lot of maintenance. We'll get into a lot more detail about figuring out your maintenance schedule and factoring that into your designs later along on this criteria list. But this is when you can start to think about and design what you want your actual lifestyle to look like around the systems that you put in. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of um, of these things go wrong because a lot of people fail to take into account their their need for social interactions. So there's definitely a big thing that I've seen. I notice it a lot with with people who pass through here in in Atitlan because here in Sunu now we have a wonderful community around us. We're sort of in an urban area, but we're also supported by we have a lot of neighbors who are like minded who are doing similar kind of things. So that that's very important and it's something i see a lot of permaculturalists get wrong they like head off to the hills with all this enthusiasm and energy to to be off the grid and to be sustainable and all the rest of it but because they haven't thought okay what kind of lifestyle do i want to do i want to go to a concert every now and again do i want to chill out with friends and they sometimes end up i've heard this from like numerous people who end up living in very remote areas with systems that completely depend on you know 30 40 hours of labor a week from them to keep the thing going but then it 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 actually can become kind of a drag because there isn't really a business plan in place there's no sort of like entrepreneurial work to go like okay can you get this to the point in a few years where there's profits coming in so you can maybe employ people to run some of the systems so you can give yourself less responsibility have you thought about your sort of social circle how that's going to look like because if you end up producing all your food but you're living in the middle of nowhere and then you're like driving three hours once a week 
or tw- or once a f- once a every two weeks, you know, just to hook up with some friends or do something social or get out of the, you know, get out of this rural area where you're not met socially. Then suddenly, all the kind of um, energy that you're saving by having your your lovely garden and all the rest of it, you're losing uh, by having to travel somewhere else. So, you know, these things really are super important. So with those things in mind, let's work through a little bit of the list that we have here for the visioning exercise. Now, this is just a guideline, but some very useful questions that we have utilized to ask clients, um, even ourselves and organizations that we've worked with to get to some of the most important information to set us off on the right foot. So starting from the beginning, what do you see as the biggest and best potential for your site or your program? Oftentimes, people don't think of what the maximum could be. People start thinking pragmatically from the beginning. There's plenty of time to start limiting down and being realistic later along in this criteria. Here is when I would encourage you to dream as big as possible. Second question, what do you and your team bring to the table as far as abilities and expertise? This is your human capital. These are the resources that you can't lose. These are your skill sets and things that will always be with you, barring some sort of tragic injury. Write about what you see as the vision for the finished product of your efforts and your resources. Now, later in this list, we'll work more through timelines and figuring out what can be accomplished within reasonable timelines. But right now you want to think of what the finished product is. Now this can be a little bit tricky because we're dealing with living systems here, which are dynamic and constantly evolving. But if you have a vision or an idea for what your end result looks like, it will help to prevent this trap that many of us who are seeking success in one form or definition or another often fall into, which is as soon as you reach a certain checkpoint, you immediately set another target and you are never satisfied with the results that you come with. This is really important because if you can give yourself an idea of what you're working towards, you can break out of this trap of constantly wanting more. Now, that isn't to say that you're not going to be uh, improving the efficiency and the comfort and the details of your site. But it will help you not run away and just constantly be chasing the next, you know, idea of a greener pasture. You know, I think in terms of farming, the way I would sum that up is like dial in one system at a time, especially if you want a profitable farm that's sort of sustaining itself. It You sort of have to do this counterintuitive thing for permaculturalists who, who always are, are told these things like... The, the yield of the system is only limited by the imagination of the designer. You know, that's true, but it's also like a half truth. It's limited by the time, it's limited by the imagination and also the time and resources of the designer. So you can have a farm and you can have 10 different products that you sell from the farm, but the best way to do it, if you want it to be sustainable and if you really want it to work, is get one thing like a market garden like an animal system you know for us on our farm it's been the goats it's like okay we get the goats they're happy they're they're healthy now it's you know they they give this much milk so we're going to make this much cheese and this much yogurt and we got to get a label on it and get it into stores and actually get that coming in paying it's all all of its own expenses and generating extra revenue to put back into the farm and when it's really dialed in and it's really working 
um, then we can get the next thing going, which for us will probably be our garden, our hens are coming along now, but you know, each thing one at a time, and then you create links between those things. But we'll get a lot more into that in detail as we start to figure out the strategy and the pragmatism of our designs. At this point, we can still dream really big. Um, this is where you can put all your kind of outlandish fantasies out there. And as we move forward in the pragmatic parts of this criteria, we'll whittle them down to what can be realistically achieved. So now let's start talking about some of the questions that identify some of the limiting factors and some of the expansive factors that we're working with. So what is the best case scenario? Now this is a bit of an abstract question because it can be answered and thought about in a lot of different ways. Answer it how it relates to you and your project. There's no wrong answers here. This is really just information gathering so that people can get on the same page. Now the flip side, the question would be, what is the worst case scenario? What if a hurricane rolls through your site and trashes what you've been building? What if um, some other unforeseen, um, I don't know, way of damaging progress or limiting progress comes up? What are your fears and hesitations? Now, this to me was one of the most profound questions when I started to really dial in the business aspect of what we do. And I'm confident that this would apply to any other business venture as well. Oftentimes, the things holding us back most are internal. Our personal fears and hesitations are harder to name, but can be much more limiting than perhaps the capacity of a piece of land, which we can work to develop uh, to increase the holding capacity of. This is where you've got to do a little bit of internal work. Um, figure out within yourself what it is that is causing you to put up roadblocks which are not objective but subjectively come from your own experience and your own hang-ups i mean i think the guy who summed this up best was uh darren doherty when he was uh, the podcast is well worth listening to that oliver did with um with darren doherty because he talks about his scale of permanence which in conventionally in permaculture starts with climate but you know, he says it actually is the, the, the most complex thing and the, the thing you have to put most energy into to get change is interpersonal dynamics and agreements between people. And definitely this is another area that's hugely overlooked. Our own personal blocks, our own fears, um, it's very easy to sweep those under the carpet, but they will come up and they will, they will bite you in the butt uh, if you don't sort them out from the get-go um so you know a business plan and agreements between partners which avoid conflicts later on are hugely hugely important things to look at um and and being honest with yourself and you know being willing actually to go into the the places in yourself that are that are frightening for you to look at absolutely important because if you're going to get to the point where you're leading other people you really need to be centered and um so yeah that 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 kind of stuff that subjective stuff as oliver says it's it's more complex and it's trickier so that's why it needs to be paid attention to from the start and worked on continuously throughout the process yeah definitely one of the things that is most overlooked when it comes to planning and organizing for a project. People do all this external work and forget to take care of some of their own limiting factors. As far as the visioning exercise, the last two questions here are what are your organization's limiting factors? 
or, or for yourself? And what could come up that would prevent you from achieving your ambitions? They're kind of different ways of coaxing out what at this point might be hard to see uh, from, from a distance, but could really hold you back as you move forward. So let's move on to defining our goals. In the beginning, there are two categories, needs and wants, and it's very important to understand the difference between these two. Needs are things that you must have in order to live and continue to be productive. I count things like cooking, cleaning, and sleeping. Um, You can get into much further detail within each of those, but especially as far as your buildings and your shelter, uh, if you can accommodate these three things, cooking, cleaning, and sleeping, the rest is kind of like, you know, storage space and comfort issues. Wants, things like comfort, convenience, having more options, etc. Again, have tons and tons of subcategories within these. But making sure that you understand the difference between needs and wants will help you make good decisions moving forward when you start to reach the limit of your resources or your budget and you have to make difficult choices as to where to put your resources in in order to move forward. Next would be, what would you most like to complete in one year's time, five years, 10 years, and 20 years? Now, obviously, these later time frames can be very hard to look that far forward into, but try and set a loose framework. You can always go back and add detail and redefine the direction as you get closer to those time frames, but really try and put some detail into your first year goals and what you think is likely to be completed within that time frame. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, in terms of looking at a farm, putting in outputs from the farm as as a need, um, especially if you're looking at a farm that is designed to feed you first and, and be profitable second, you know. Um, there's that like famous saying in in permaculture that every important function should be supported by at least three elements and every important element uh should or every yeah every major element should perform at least three functions you know another way of looking at that is like in our case if we're deciding that we want to feed ourselves uh, when we're here you know six, supply 60 70 percent of our diet from from this farm for when we're here you know we need to look at things like okay what's our diet comprised of we want you know this amount of protein this amount of carbohydrate those are like extremely important functions so a resilient farm should uh, provide those from various different elements right so you know we've got our garden we're going to grow a lot of beans we're going to grow a lot of like high iron uh leaves and that kind of things but that's really only one element supporting that need that you know that um supplying that need for protein so we also have our animal systems our eggs you know extra sources of protein so that if one breaks down there's another one there to back it up uh you know it's similar with water water is a basic human need you're not going to get very far in any farm without uh without a source of water but making sure that you've got various different sources right um so that way you build you build resiliency into your model. I think that's a like super important to, to realize. Absolutely. These redundant systems are what you rely on when something fails. And if you think things are going to go smoothly, especially in the beginning of a project, you're setting yourself up for some disappointment. Um, even given the resources and the 
the expertise and the experience that we have within our group and our team here, we're still constantly coming up against things that you know, you just can't foresee. And as the seasons change, we start to observe a lot of the cracks and a lot of the weak points in the systems that we've put in and fixing those or securing them up or adding resiliency, resiliency into the system often takes on sort of this urgent reactionary method as seasons change, as different components come up. And you need to realize that that is natural. Don't take it as a as a distraction or a discouragement, but it will take a lot of your time. It definitely has for us in the drastic changes of the seasons that we have here in Guatemala. So moving forward, how would you like to see your site or your organization structured within these timeframes, one, five, 10, and 20 years? The 20 year time frame is really just there in place to give you an idea of what you think of as sort of the finished model. 20 years is a realistic amount of time to have things set up the way you want and mostly just be tweaking and adjusting things for efficiency, for comfort, and uh, for optimizing the, the effectiveness. How would you like to see your facilities and landscape set up in those time frames? How would you like to see your lifestyle, your daily, weekly schedule in those time frames? How do you see yours and the organization's income in each of those time frames. Now, this again is often overlooked. Your income that is going to be supplying not only, I guess, your living costs and your lifestyle expenses, but potentially creating investment fund for further growth and expansion of enterprises in whatever your project is aiming to accomplish. This is where you actually need to start looking into things like business plans, doing some accounting and some of the more kind of nerdy or boring aspects of planning ahead, but it's absolutely essential for putting in a game plan and having some numbers to reference so you can see if you're making progress or not. And lastly, how would you define resilience and stability within the context of your ambitions? It's very easy to define these if you have some training in permaculture, especially if these are land-based projects. You can define resiliency as its ability to thrive in the changing of seasons and different climactic events, including storms, earthquakes, whatever it might be. And the, the redundancy within your systems in case a failure, well, inevitably, a failure of one of them comes up, your systems don't collapse. Yeah, I think this the the business plan aspect for me is is also hugely overlooked in in designing because it's it really is such an important part of it and I know speaking from my own experience I've kind of come full circle a little bit with this sort of stuff having started out working in the private sector and then very much going away from it uh you know being involved with a few different NGOs and doing development kind of work um but then you really and and I really have seen um how a lot of the people I talk to sort of have like an aversion to business. It's kind of like see it as this uh oh, you know, that's like capitalism and that's bad and you know, I want to like live in permaculture and be in harmony with nature, but there's actually nothing to say you can't do both. Um and unless we're you know, I would love to see a restructuring of the economy and a, a switch to a sort of resource-based economy. And anyone who's ever, let, ever read any Charles Eisenstein stuff will know exactly what I'm talking about. But for the meantime, we sort of have to play by certain rules. Um, and the thing about this stuff is 
you know, good permaculture design is so much more energy efficient that there's no reason it shouldn't be profitable if that's something that's important to you. Um, but taking the time and learning some, learning from some of the amazing, um, the amazing coaches and, and, and business experts that are out there really well worth your while. And it's important to note that there's a lot of different ways that you can actually gain a profit. If anybody's interested in looking up, I forget the resource or where to find it, but the eight forms of capital and different ways that you can actually create a surplus within different types of enterprises. You know, the obvious ones would be in a farming context, the harvest that you get either from animal products, plant-based products, uh, or even fertility for your soil. You want to always be having a surplus. Now, it might not be your personal motivation to make money out of these enterprises, though I would encourage you to at least entertain the option because money is an extremely useful tool. Uh, you may have an aversion to it for a number of different reasons uh, for staying away from kind of predatory business models. And I completely agree with that. I, I sympathize with those feelings. But in our own experience, I've noticed that by getting rid of the idea of profitability, you're really kind of tying one of your hands behind your back as far as a resource that can help you to grow in a way that's equitable. And I'm convinced that uh, socially motivated and community motivated enterprises with a profitable business model can actually be a lot more effective and can spend more of their time and resources on increasing the efficiency and the abundance of their systems rather than constantly going and, you know, uh, either begging for funds, begging is kind of a harsh word, um, or looking for donations or constantly be doing some sort of fundraising just to keep them afloat. If you have a profitable business model, that isn't to say that you have to use those funds or those resources to enrich your own life. You can choose how you use them. And I'm convinced that these socially motivated enterprises have much more potential in restructuring the economy in a positive way and an equitable way for all people if they're leveraged correctly and people use the resources in a socially responsible way. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, and it helps to have a sound business model as well to, to get people out of scarcity mode, you know. You can really start giving, if you have this attitude, which I think a lot of permaculturalists have, of wanting to give more than you're receiving. Um, it was a lovely concept I was introduced when I, to when I was working in um, in EMAP, the, the Mesoamerican Permaculture Institute. Um and the, the guys who run that place teach their their Mayan farmers and they teach permaculture as a sort of a way of maintaining their, their own heritage. But one of the things Ronnie, the director, always talks about there is how previously in Mayan cultures, the, the person who was wealthiest in the economy was the one who who gave the most, not who had the most. Um, because if you're living in a, in a healthy community... You know, the more you give, the more you will you will receive back in kind. That's what we see from how symbiosis works in nature and and all the rest of it. But to set yourself up into in that position where you can really be a, a positive influence in your community and your ecosystem, it has to be from a sound base. You can't you you will very quickly slip back into a scarcity mindset if if your basic needs are not being met or if you're panicking about being able to pay your bills for the upcoming month, you know? And we say all of this not to get people 
kind of discouraged or overwhelmed with the idea that their enterprises have to be profitable immediately. Frankly, our own isn't yet, and we're six months into developing this farm. But we do have a plan to switching over from coming out of our savings and our investment fund in this place to as quickly as possible paying for the development of this place as well as the salaries of the people who are supporting us through the earnings of the products that we are putting out. Yeah, and it's a very important process for us to to go into, and it's why, like, as designers and consultants, you know, 80% of our time for the next year or two will actually be in developing our own systems. Because what I'm finding with this, uh, and I think you too, Oliver, is that our own, the quality of our own service is, is evolving and improving as we're seeing our own farm evolve, right? Um, so really our, our main goal for our place is to develop this resiliency and this profitability in our farm so that we can then go out and help our clients do the same thing. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Now let's move on to the next section, which is site analysis and inventory of resources and limitations. So anyone who's been through a PDC or has learned much about permaculture knows that gathering information from the beginning and learning to read your landscape and the patterns in nature is absolutely essential to, to be able to work with it effectively. And so site analysis and mapping needs to be the next step once you get on the same page with the people involved with your project as to the direction that you're going in and the limitations that you may come up against. Now it's time for us to really understand our landscape and the ecology within it so that we can make informed decisions that advance our agenda while working in symbiosis with nature to reduce the amount that we have to kind of fight or manipulate against it to get our will. In fact, if we design correctly with the information we're about to gather, the natural systems around us and that we're working with can help to advance our own agenda as well. So starting out with mapping, you want to at least get the compass coordinates, the general contours, and any major features within the boundaries of the site. Now, this is a bare minimum. Any other information or specificity that you can put into your map is going to be a huge resource moving forward. But if you can at least accommodate those things that I just mentioned, you should be able to move along at least effectively with some of the most essential information. From there, you want to do a climate assessment. Now, there's a number of different ways to do this and a couple of different pieces of key information that you need to make sure that you have access to. First of all, the overall climate. Um, and this is going back from trends. Notice the difference between climate and weather. So in one season, you're not getting an idea of what the climate is. You need to go and look at data from honestly as long back as possible because especially in about the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of climactic conditions have started to shift. And you're only going to notice how those have been shifting if you get a larger picture of what was normal from a longer uh, view backwards. You also want to get an idea of the average annual rainfall, again, from as far back as possible. The major seasons and their average high and low temperatures are essential for starting out. From there, you want to look into natural disaster assessment. Now, this includes everything from earthquake risk, volcanoes, storms, and especially flood or drought potential. These can be extremely limiting factors, and you need to understand that the trends are starting to accelerate. The things that you would have previously considered to be a hundred year 
uh, weather events or damaging or huge disturbance factors on your site can start to happen now every 10, maybe even five years because of the way that climate change is affecting different regions around the world. And it does affect them differently. Yeah, and then this is the time where, you know, it starts to get real, as Oliver was saying. And, uh, you know, Shad in Atitlan Organics always has a great saying that he teaches in, in his permaculture courses, which is like, this is where you look for that first boom moment, aha moment, where the goals that you expressed in the visioning session congru are, meet a point of congruence with your sign analysis so the best design is the convergence of well-articulated goals and thorough site analysis i think that's like you know for me that's that's key to understanding that and it may be that you do your site analysis and you got to go back and relook at your goals but the closer they were sort of to your kind of to your heart um and the better they were written down from the start before you even started to do this. So those two things need to need to be separate. And then this is the point during the site analysis where you sit down and say, yeah, we can, we can achieve this dream plus do all these other things from this site. Or no, we can't. It's time to revisit it. And you get these kind of like design is always a cyclical process that's also very important so you're always accepting feedback from whatever stage you're at and then you know revisiting things and it's the same it's actually the exact same with your inner work and your intergroup work yeah absolutely um this criteria list is meant to go in linear order as far as the progressions that you work through but it doesn't at all mean that you don't go back after you've gathered more information to revise some of the earlier uh, sectors and like neil said this is a cyclical process once you come to certain conclusions and start to execute um, a lot of the plans and the individual tasks that are on your list you're going to learn a lot of things that are going to change the assessment of the site um, might change up the the resources that you're working with, either accelerating how fast you're working through your budget or even slow it down. And as more information comes in, you should feel you should feel fine about going back and revising some of the steps along this list. And again, this should be pretty familiar to anyone who's done a permaculture course, right? Because these are two major design principles. One is accept um, feedback. Um, and apply self-regulation. So, uh, and the other one is design from patterns to details. So those those two things are very uh, prevalent here, and that's I think a lot of what they were trying to get across. That you're always willing to accept feedback and 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 change your plans and not get attached to ideas. Um, and that you start with these very broad patterns like climate, like aspect, um. You know, this again where like using the scale of permanence is is very important. Um, and I'll be putting an article up on the website soon um, about using the scale of permanence in design. Uh, you know, and that's like a very, a very good thing to refer to at this point as well. So again, any of you familiar with permaculture design will understand what I'm talking about on the next section, which is defining your sectors. 
Now, obviously, this is going to change as you start to implement part of your design. Your sectors are going to shift, if not completely transform, as parts of the design become implemented. But at least from the beginning, you want to look at where the sun patterns are and how they change in different seasons, how different aspects of the climate affect different areas of your site directly, wind, um, certain migrational movements can be factored into this and there's a whole list of other things that you can put into that sector map you also want to closely analyze your contour and your slope where and how does water and airflow move along your site this is going to be essential when it comes to dispersing these resources effectively without fighting against the natural patterns yeah and this is like you know, this is where you get to the crux of your design. You're into the meat of it. There's so many good resources on, on water management. This is the first point that you can intervene on the land and make, you know, for relatively low energy inputs, get get huge rewards. Um, but it absolutely has to be climate specific and uh, the type of lands. So, you know, you see this mistake as well because people take a, do a permaculture course and you know, the things that jump out at them, for example, are swales, terraces, compost, and it's like, brilliant, all great techniques sometimes. Um, you know, so knowing, you know, as Oliver was talking about, what are the, how much rain is going to fall in a season? What's a major weather event look like? Are all my swales and ponds going to fill up and and burst through the, their, their, the, 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 the banks? Um, you know, so like, you will be you slowly arrive at this point and it becomes obvious to you what type of earthworks are actually appropriate um and yeah but this is where this is where you'll start to see results really really quickly if you've done all the other parts properly moving here to another couple of assessments that are really key the definition of sectors contour and slope should definitely give you an idea of what types of microclimates you're working with and different areas of your site. These might affect your growing potential minorly and it might affect it very substantially. An assessment of these different areas and how they change the microclimates around them are really worth taking into account and at this point we're going into much more detail on our site analysis. The drainage ability of your soil is another thing to really take stock in and you want to try this test out on different areas of your site in order to get an idea of how water gets absorbed or infiltrated into the soil on different areas where you're thinking about cultivating. Now if anybody's tried the the bucket test, essentially you dig a hole about two feet deep and two feet in diameter. From there you pour in a five gallon bucket of water and keep track of how long it takes for that water to absorb entirely into the soil. Once the hole is completely empty, you want to divide the number, the time, by five to get the rate of absorption of one gallon of water. Now, knowing how fast the water gets absorbed into the soil is going to give you a good idea of what types of soil amendments you're going to need to be able to grow certain types of crops. Obviously, some of which are heavier feeders than others and need to be babied a little bit more and have different water, um, different water necessities. From there, where are the access points on your site? Roads, driveways, paths, docks, etc. 
These are really going to determine the energy flows and how you have access to different resources and how efficiently you can move them to other sites on your land. Major features like vegetation. What's already there? Everything from huge rocks and trees to gullies, creeks, and previously disturbed sites are going to give you a lot of information about what you can do with what's already there. Yeah, this is just pretty simple stuff, really. You know, the bucket test, you're really just looking at what does water do on this type of land? Um, you know, because, yeah, you've got your climate, so you know how much rain falls in a year, but the type of soil you have will make it radically different, the, the implications, how you hold it on the land, how much seepage are you going to get? Um and, you know, another, like, really simple one to do, again, like, in, in terms of principles, uh, like, the whole observe and interact thing is, and these are just, like, tools for helping you to observe better. Uh, so, another, like, simple one you can do is just leave a five-gallon bucket out in your yard and watch how long it takes to fill up with water and then what happens to that water. Um go and look at it in a major rain event and see how is like it just overflowing um does it freeze and then burst you know <laughs> those types of things that will tell you like a lot about you know okay if we put a pipe along here um you know is the water going to freeze in it and burst all these kinds of things that you might not think of these these things will just kind of like help you to improve your sort of intuition and your connection to the place. Now, the last real assessment that I want to go into detail on here, and obviously there are so many more pieces of information that you can mine for on a site, but it's a concept of relative and absolute elevation. Now, absolute elevation is your elevation above sea level. How high are you above sea level? Now, here in Guatemala, on our particular site, we're almost one mile up above sea level. And though we are in the subtropics, and with all the implications of a very warm and mild climate that that implies, our elevation actually makes it even more mild, and we get much cooler temperatures here than we do closer down to the coast, even though they're at the same latitude. Yeah, and that's actually a huge difference, you know, in terms of the way this ecosystem behaves. We get way less rain, um, you know, we get, like, actually quite cool night temperatures in at certain times a year. Um, you know, we get, we get fog and, and clouds settling over us, high winds and very seasonal winds. Um, so, you know, like big, big difference to, so it makes us like, we're much more similar in climate to a bunch of places in Peru, which is miles away than we are to places half an hour's drive away where the elevation changes dramatically. Now, the difference between absolute elevation and relative elevation is how high are you up above or below the surrounding terrain? So we're in a mountain valley here, and we're actually fairly high up the valley. Everything kind of goes to its lowest point around here, to the level of Lake Atitlan, which is kind of the biggest climactic feature as far as microclimates go for our region. This big body of water helps to mediate temperature differences, but also is one of the driving factors to the high winds that we get around here, even though we're fairly sheltered in the valley. The other advantage of being high up in this valley is that we are much less prone to things like flooding. 
water is not really going to stay on our site because of the inclination or disinclination of the land itself. It's going to run off rather quickly. Fortunately, we're not on a very steep site, so we have the potential to put in swales, terraces, and other things to slow it down. But your relative elevation can determine a lot as far as risk assessment for your land itself. Let's move on to another subcategory of this, inventory of materials. Now, this really applies more to the things that you want to build or amend as far as infrastructure on your site. From a natural building perspective, you always want to take a look at what materials are available on your site already. Building materials such as clay soil, stones, lumber, and suitable grasses could save you tons of money on construction, or at least for importing other materials from further away. What materials are available locally? So moving one step out into maybe your zone two within your community. Check with your neighbors, your community boards, your municipal bodies. Even dumpsters and landfills could have perfectly good building materials and tools. Taking one more step out into perhaps a zone three or a zone four, let's look at what materials are available at a distance. But ideally that have the lowest embodied energy and the lowest toxicity, things like recycled or refurbished materials, giveaways on places like Craigslist, anything secondhand or recycled before buying new, can help you make the most ecological choices even when you have to import things from further on. Now I can go into a lot more detail on how to source materials like this, but we'll save that for another episode as I have a lot of writings on this already in some of the articles on the website. All right, so that's where we're gonna leave it for today, just so that we don't run too long or overwhelm anybody with the details of this design criteria. But join us again next Friday, as we'll be picking up where we left off and completing our description of the Abundant Edge design criteria list. Looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page, to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.